0: A few years back, I was on a Maven immersive experience to UC Berkeley, the University of California, Berkeley. And while on campus, I was walking through one of the uh, classroom kind of big buildings. And right there on the bulletin board was a... A piece of paper advertising a voice lessons, and it was called the voice and spirituality experience where it talked about opening up your fifth chakra and releasing your inner voice. But it was interesting because in this, as you learn to speak and sing better, it talked about how it will also do exercises to empower you to speak your truth and sing fearlessly. And I thought, what does it mean to speak your truth in a voice lesson class? What are they? What is? Where are they going with that? But these sort of sayings we hear all the time: of speak your truth, love is love. Just be your authentic self. You only live once. You know, Jesus, God just wants you to be happy. These are common slogans that we hear, and we have to stop for a second and think well about these and think, hey, what do these mean? What are they communicating? Are, is there some truth here as well as are there some lies here that we need to expose that some cause us to be anxious or depressed or exhausted or even self-focused versus others' focus? And so that is going to be the topic of our conversation today on these lies that we often hear in culture. My name is Ryan Paul. This is Think Well, training you to think well about the Christian faith and culture so you can gauge the culture well with a biblical worldview. And today we are talking to Elisa Childers, the author of Another Gospel, uh, a podcaster, blogger, award-winning music producer, um, and and artist with Zoe Girl. She has written this new book, Live Your Truth and Other Lies, exposing popular deceptions that make us anxious, exhausted, and self-obsessed. So Elisa, it was fun to interview you on your last book, Another Gospel, and welcome back.
1: Oh, thanks, Ryan. Good to be with you again.
0: Yeah, I just appreciate your work that you do and, and how you are explaining and, and uncovering some of these things that can lead Christians away. And so kind of curious to kind of on how this book came about. Obviously, you know, you, you tell your story in your other book of, of the class that you were in and kind of being exposed to these lies that were creeping into the church and trying to expose those and help Christians be aware of how people maybe are leading away from a true Christian gospel. Uh, where, where did this kind of idea come about, about live your truth and other lies that we see in culture?
1: Well, this book actually was, and I think many people would have thought this should have been my first book. So the reason (laughs) I say that is because back in 2017, I had written a book review of a a book that was really popular at the time. It was uh, written by a self-professed Christian. It was published on a Christian uh, you know, publishing house. It was marketed to Christians, and yet it had this message in it that you know you're you should put yourself first. You're the hero of your own story. Everything's all about you. You've got to chase your dreams no matter what. And I wrote a review of that, and it went viral. It had like two million views within uh, just a couple of weeks of putting that out. And so that's wow. when I, actually, you know, started getting emails from publishing houses and agents about maybe writing a book. And I thought, well, I I want to write about progressive Christianity first, just You know from like you said it's my story it's really kind of i guess you could call it a theological memoir it's not uh really meant to be an academic survey or anything like that it's just it's really just my journey of encountering the movement of progressive christianity and what that movement might say about god and about the bible and about jesus and then um but then i always wanted to revisit the the sort of content of that blog post which had turned into, by that time, a talk I had been giving at women's conferences. And so I suppose you could think of it as expanding or actually contracting what I did in another gospel. So in another gospel, we're talking about all of these different types of approaches, but really live your truth and other lies is, is the lies we believe about ourselves, really, mm-hmm. really. Just not even so much focusing on God or the gospel, but just what do we believe about who we are as human beings? and. Um and so that that book kind of explores those but hopefully in a lighthearted way in a humorous way in a way that people can understand and just would feel like we're just sitting down having coffee
0: Yeah. So some of the lies that you cover here are live your truth. You are enough. You should put yourself first. Authenticity is everything. You only have one life. God just wants you to be happy. You shouldn't judge. You are the boss of you. It's all about love. Girl power is real power and live the truth. Um, And so uh, within these, you, you kind of talk about like how they are sometimes the, the most kind of, uh, the best lies are the ones that sound the most beautiful. And so I think that's something to kind of think about Of Like, why are these statements and phrases so attractive? Why are people drawn to these lies that you're saying are here in our culture?
1: I I think that often these sorts of slogans are well intended. So if you think about even just the phrase, you are enough, or you're perfect just as you are, because they kind of go hand in hand. You know, if somebody's been beat down by people, if they've been told you're good for nothing, you'll never amount to anything, there's sort of this natural inclination. You want to make them feel better. You want to comfort them. And so it it would make sense to say something like that. Like, you know, you're perfect just as you are. And I get it. So I think that, you know, that's why I said the best lies sound the most beautiful, because I do think people from, you know, well-intended hearts would want to say that to somebody. But it's interesting. I was watching a a show with my daughter yesterday yesterday. And somebody was feeling kind of bad about themselves. And the other person said exactly that, you know, you're perfect, just as you are. And so we were talking about that a little bit. And it's like, I get it. But at the same time, to tell somebody you're enough is really you're putting a burden on them. You're essentially saying, like, whatever's wrong with you, you have to fix that all by yourself because there's nothing outside of you that you need to be made complete or to be made whole. So all of the tools that you need are found, going to be found inside of you. But the reason that that's a burden is because it's not true. We actually don't have all the tools inside of us to fix all of our problems, which probably we created in the first place in many cases, um, not in all cases, certainly, but you know, we get ourselves in a lot of messes that we are then told we have to get ourselves out of, which is just what we find inside of ourselves. But of course, the Bible tells us a hard truth, which is the bad news that precedes the good news, but that's that we're inherently fallen. We have this fallen sin nature that actually needs to be aligned with truth. It needs to be changed. And that's a word that the world doesn't really want to hear in reference to ourselves, because the world would say, you know, you need to find what's inside of yourself and don't change that. Just live that out. And yeah. so that's kind of the, the thing. I think all these lies sort of circle around that idea.
0: Yeah, and it sounds very similar. You know, just yesterday in my worldview class with my high schoolers, uh, we were finishing up the new spiritualist worldview. Right, this idea kind of within kind of this new age movement of like you, you know we are all gods and this you know spiritual oneness that exists. And and we watched videos by Deepak Chopra, a very famous spiritualist teacher, talking about how you can unlock all the power of the universe within you if you would just realize who you are. That there's one consciousness, one ecosystem, one you know kind of substance that exists, and we are all one. And then You have the power of the universe. And then we read quotes where it's like, you are powerful. You are wonderful. You are amazing. You are perfect. You are eternal. You are God. And it's like, and I asked my students, I'm like, is that attractive? And it's Mm. like, yeah. Like who doesn't want to like, yes, I can do this. I have the power. I have the energy. I, I am this amazing person. And that is very like encouraging in a sense, but at the same time, is that true? Am I God? Am I eternal? Do I have the power of the universe? Universe at my fingertips. And so this can kind of lead, you know, us to, as you think you said, kind of have this almost this burden of then if I'm not doing well, well, why not? Is it because I haven't tapped into my energy, my sources, my my power that is supposed to be inside of me? And so this is helpful to kind of think through. Now, obviously, I think that as I'm teaching through new spirituality and new age movement and spiritualism and that kind of stuff, I see these lies a lot kind of within that idea that we are kind of have the divine within us. Um, where are you seeing these? Uh, you mentioned there's one Christian writer. Where else are you seeing people kind of presenting uh, these lies? Where do you see the most common?
1: Well, I just think the ones that I talked about in this particular book are everywhere. I mean, it's in all of the programming that's aimed at my kids It's in a lot of, sadly, a lot of Christian literature that's aimed at women. I think that we see that a lot, but mainly I think the place we see it more than anywhere is just on this, the pop level social media influencer, like self-help guru kind of people. It's just interesting, this phenomenon of social media, what it's created, are these communities with essentially gurus that people follow. And a lot of times these gurus don't have any qualifications to be that for somebody, but yet they position themselves as experts, not just in one thing, but in many things. It's just, it's so fascinating to me to go on some of these social media platforms and witness whoever it is that's leading the community um, will literally learn how to do something and then make a video teaching other people how to do it when they've literally just learned how to do it, whether it's Mm bread or it's, you know, a m- cooking a meal or it's some sort of exercise thing or spiritual thing, or maybe, and I, I point this out in the book too, very often they're in the middle of massive life changes. And some of those, uh, you know, we would draw our compassion and we'd want to pray for people, of course. But it's like, it's, it's weird to me that people want to take life advice from somebody who's in a massive life change. So we haven't even had a chance to see how this is going to pan out for them. And yet they're saying, oh, this is wonderful. I've changed, you know, either they deconstruct out of the faith, I've left the faith, and you should too because of X, Y, Z. But like, give it five years, give it 10 years, see how this pans out. And so it's just an interesting phenomenon, this sort of self-appointed expert that we see. And so a lot of that is, it's an easy message, I think, just to say, you know, you have it within you, I'm finding it within me, follow your heart, I'll follow my heart, it's it's I mean, I hate to say it this way, but it's kind of lazy, it's easy to tell somebody to do that, because then you don't have to actually do the hard work of grounding yourself in what is true. And actually, you know, especially in this culture where disagreement equals hate. And so if you can just make a platform telling people, hey, I'm not going to disagree with you, you get to do whatever you want. Well, that feels good to people. And uh, yeah, it's just an interesting phenomenon, I think.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And it's, a, you know, kind of along with that, I think, you know, I talk with my students about this idea of like, do whatever you want, but as long as you don't hurt anybody. Right. We, we talk about how this is kind of a, just a very minimalistic ethic, right? It's just like, just don't yeah. hurt people. It's like, what about going above and beyond and loving people and helping people and caring for people? And that takes a little bit more work and that is a little bit harder to do. Um, Now, another place in which you mentioned in your book where I think this is also very common is I see this as I walk around my neighborhood in signs that are in the front yard of many houses uh, in my area of Southern California. They will say something like, we believe in this home. You know, no human is illegal. Love is love. Women's rights are human's rights. Science is real. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. And, And these kind of quotes on the sign and you look at that. And then in one sense you say, yeah, there's, there's some truth here, but at the same time, it's like, well, has this been twisted? And you kind of mentioned that a little bit. So I don't know if there's something that you would kind of want to mention there that you kind of talk about in your book about as well as just seeing these signs kind of around the neighborhood as we go on evening walks.
1: Oh man, I feel like we're opening up <laughs> and right here because it's like, <laughs> yeah, it, so oh, gosh, where do I go? Because it's words, right? Our culture has redefined words we use words in a very fluid and flexible way. And I really think that this is the influence of postmodernism on our culture. And I think a lot of people have sort of adopted this postmodern idea, but yet they don't even realize it. So take, for example, these signs, you know, love is love. Well, of course, I mean, or, or we believe in science or whatever it is. Well, of course yeah. we want to say that science is real. I think that's what it is. Science, yeah, science is, is
0: real. And I, I always think like, I don't even know what science is real is. Like who,
1: like, Right, yeah, science.
0: Like a- yeah. Of
1: course science is real. Everybody everybody agrees with that, but that's not what that sign means. And I think right. that's the where we see the postmodern influence. And so one of the things that I talk about I think early on in the book and actually this is this is where I get excited because that concept is really the topic of my next book, which is the deconstruction movement and postmodernism and all of that. But ultimately when you have a culture that has adopted the idea that objective meaning cannot be communicated with words. Then all you're left with is power and slogans. And so you have something like the word love, for example, classically, you know, biblically, let's just say biblically, love is one of God's attributes. It has to start for the Christian with the nature and character of God. And of course, Paul fleshes this out for us in 1 Corinthians 13 love is patient, love is kind. But then he says, love cannot rejoice in wrongdoing, but love rejoices in the truth. So biblically speaking, it would not be loving to affirm something about somebody else that's sinful or harmful to them and yet what that phrase love is love on that sign actually means is that you affirm the new you know the new cultural sexual ethic right that's what right. that actually means even though they're using they're co-opting a word that would actually entail and i think you know you don't even need a bible for this i think just anybody who's parented a child you know you don't just give your you know agree with your kid all the time and give them right. everything they want let them follow their heart's desires everywhere they go so it's, it's just bizarre how we've almost weaponized language. And I think this really is rooted in postmodernism, which you know goes back to guys like Jacques Derrida and Michel Foucault, but especially Derrida no, being known as the father of deconstruction, where he didn't believe that words could be pinned down to singular meanings. And so therefore, the intent of the author had no more bearing on the meaning of the, the words than the interpretation of the hearer or the reader. And that's right where we're at. And it's become this fluid thing. So if nobody thinks you can even communicate that with words, well, I mean, what about the gospel? That's what the gospel is, is a message that's delivered verbally. It's delivered with words. And our our culture is just so confused on this. And I think it's because of an, maybe an unintentional, or some some intentional, but I think with a lot of people, we just catch it. We just kind of catch this idea of postmodernism. And it's influenced everything from what, how, what we even think words can actually communicate all the way to the gospel and objective truth being something that can be known and communicated.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I love asking kind of people and I, and I've bring, I brought this up with my students of like, okay, what does love is love mean when you, when you hear this in culture, what does that mean? It's like, well, that means, you know, you shouldn't be against people that want to love each other. It's like, well, just simply love each other. Like, well, yeah, we should love all people. Like that's of course. But is that what this is talking about? And then it's like, well, no, it's saying that you shouldn't be against like same sex relationships and same sex marriage and, and you know, that, all that stuff. And it's like, okay, right. That's what it's talking about. And so like, is that <clears throat> is should all forms of sexual love, are those all equal? Is all type of sexual sexual love is that just love is love? It's all the same. And then they can quickly, pretty, pretty quickly go, well, no, there is types of sexual love that is inappropriate and that we need as a culture need to stand against. And so kind of this blanket, like all forms of love and all types of expression of love are equal. It's like, well, that's clearly not true. And, you know, okay. so we have to take some time and, and think through this. And, um, you know, science is real. Is that ta- I've always asked is that is that talking about um, like those who deny like global warming and climate change? Do you do you know if you've looked into that?
1: Me personally? Yeah. I, is the well, science is
0: real statement talking about like well, vaccines, I, like those who are against I, like vaccines or against like global warming or something?
1: Well, it's probably a little bit of both, honestly. But I, I kind of took it more on the vaccine kind of things because it's really that's a bizarre thing, too, how. You know, because I I know a lot of Christians that have different opinions on vaccines, but it's almost like the narrative is that if you're, you know, the Christians are anti-science because they're— but you know, outspoken Christians about that stuff. So yeah, I think right. it probably. But I, I mean, it really could equally apply to both because that's that's kind of the narrative on both of those topics.
0: Yeah, yeah. Also, yeah, I think it, as well the Christians being science deniers and you know, evolution deniers, maybe and stuff like that. So yes, yeah, so, I mean these these comments come up all the time, and so I kind of want to work through some of these um, as we we kind of see where it's coming from and what's behind it. Uh, the first one you talk about is this idea of live your truth or speak your truth. Um, when 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 you often hear this, what is kind of maybe the the popular way in which what is meant by the statement, live or speak your truth, my truth, your truth?
1: Right. Well, if we go back to postmodernism, which, you know, ultimately is just a denial that if objective truth exists, I've talked with postmodern people who actually advocate for like a postmodern correction to Christianity. So from their perspective, they've said things like, well, I believe objective truth exists exists, I believe that it's something about reality is true, but just don't think we can claim to know it. And so if that's if that's the view, if that's somebody's view that you can't know objective truth about reality, well, then there's like a suspicion against anyone who would come around claiming to know it. Well, that puts the Christian in a tough spot because for the Christian, there is no live your truth. It's, it's like we're making claims about objective reality, exclusive claims about the nature of Jesus and how people can be in God's presence forever. And that's not just kind of a free for all for everybody, but there's actually an objective truth that can be known. But in the mind of the postmodern, in the mind I think of so many people that we're engaging with today in our culture, any claim to know objective truth, especially when it would come to things like religion and morality are seen as power grabs. And so I don't know if you've experienced this, Ryan, but like when you've made a statement of objective truth on social media, for example, and somebody rather than engaging with what you've actually said, it's not like it very happens very often where somebody will come on one of my posts, for example, and say, Well, here's where I believe you got this fact wrong, they immediately go to motive, they immediately say, Well, you must be, you know, psychologically damaged from your, you know, the the toxic theology, you believe or something like that. And so they don't understand why you would be making claims about objective reality, because they don't think it can be known. So you must be just trying to prop up some institution of power. So there's that. So, the, so we have, as Christians, kind of this challenge in that area. But I think one of the ways, and this is where I tried to frame it this way in the book with the live your truth lie, is that it really doesn't exist. Your truth actually doesn't exist. Um, take, for example, like what I would believe to be the best dessert or something like that. Um, even though that's my opinion, it's still true for you, Ryan, that whatever I think is the best dessert is what I think, right? It's kind of, you can't escape objective truth. It's like, it's still true for you that I think brownies and ice cream is the best, right? Right. And so there's objective truth. And so my truth is really just an opinion. So when we tell people live your truth, we're basing it on the idea that objective truth about reality can't actually be known. So the best we can do is just kind of dig down inside of our own hearts, identify our deepest desires and live those things out. And, and live your truth. But I think there's something else underneath that, and that goes kind of hand in hand with the you're perfect just as you are and the you are enough lie, and that's that humans are inherently good. I think this is a huge message in culture. In fact, I love, you know, I was talking with you about your, your research right now about evangelism and teens. I think one of the biggest challenges teens have and all of us have right now today in this culture is convincing people that they need to be saved, convincing people that they actually are sinners in need of a savior because right. Like this is not a thing that is a popular message right now. I was thinking about my dad, who, back in the late '60s, early '70s, all of his hippie friends were searching for God. Like they knew something was wrong, and they wanted to fix it. They wanted to figure out what this transcendent reality was that they all knew actually did exist. They were just looking to find out what it was. But fast forward to today, and people do, they they think they're inherently good. They've been told this their whole lives, and so. That would make sense. If you thought you were inherently good and objective truth couldn't be known, well, then living your truth would be the absolute most virtuous thing to do. I really get that. But I think we have to take a couple steps back and say, okay, are those things true that objective truth can't be known? And are we good? Because if we back up to those questions, then we can see how living your truth can actually be a very dangerous thing in some cases.
0: Yeah. yeah, And I think it's kind of important to kind of, I think, recognize if like, there are people out there Right, maybe the minority. I don't know. There are some authors, right, that are claiming like there is no truth whatsoever. Our subjective experiences and our opinions and the lens and our eyes in which we see everything through makes it ultimate and and objective truth completely inaccessible. But, for the, I think the average person, they're not going to go that far, right? They, they still think that there's objective truth in math. Two plus two is four. That's just true. If you say it's seven, I'm sorry, you're wrong. Now they may not come out and say you're wrong, but they know it's wrong. um and and there's truth in science, and there's truth in history of who, you know, that sort of thing. But really, when we're talking about, you know, I think, postmodern influences you mentioned a couple of times, it's it's when it comes to morality and religion that all roads lead to heaven or there's no really one true right religion and so to claim Jesus is the only way or that, you know, you know, some sort of a a moral claim on something is actually wrong. That is where people are often going to push back. Uh, Would you kind of agree with that? Is that that's kind of the general sense of our country If that's where we see postmodernism influences on morality and religion?
1: 100%. Yeah. Cause even though, like you said, even though if you Google two plus two equals five, you're going to find a lot of people claiming that science and logic are, products of white supremacy or something like that. But I don't think most people are there with things like they go to the bank, they expect their money to be there. They stop at red lights. They're going to appeal to the law. If a law is broken, there's, there's ways in which most people don't live as if relativism is true in every area, but that's hundred percent. I totally agree. It's, it's the areas of religion and morality that we've moved those into the favorite dessert category. The, The more just would be relative to you and relative to me.
0: Yeah. Now, what if someone is using this phrase like "speak your truth" as if like, um, you know, share share your experience, share what happened to you. Um, you know, don't be, you know, let's say you you're in a a situation where someone kind of mistreats you, and it's like, hey, what what happened to you? What did they do to you? And it's like, oh, well, I don't want to say. It's like, come on, speak your truth. Like, like, tell us right. what what happened. Uh, what if they're using it in that sense?
1: Well, so that's sort of the sense in which my understanding is how Oprah was using it, sort of to encourage, it was, I think, in the, in the heels of the Me Too movement, she was encouraging abuse victims to right. speak out about what had happened to them. And I think that that's a noble goal, of course. We want people to speak about what happened and not just push those things down, and we want to hold abusers accountable and things like that. But to tell an abuse victim to speak your truth, to me, the way, I mean, the way the words are, that's implying that that could be just true for you. And I think it's a stronger thing to tell someone like an abuse victim or something that has happened to say, speak the truth. Because it's true for everybody that this happened to you. If what you're saying is true, it's true for everybody. And so I think it strengthens um, the what we're telling people. Like if, if something bad has happened and they don't wanna talk about it, speak the truth is, is way better and stronger. And actually I think more affirming to what actually potentially happened. Because again, if we're just saying speak your truth, then it's like, well, that might just be true for you. No, speak that truth. This is true for everybody. If it's real, if it's really true, then it's true for the abuser. It's true for everybody else. And there needs to be accountability and healing and all of that stuff. Yeah. Um, so it strengthens it to, to bring it into the realm of the objective.
0: Yeah. So instead of like, kind of tell us what you think happened or tell us what you believe happened, it's like, tell us what happened. What happened? Um, you know, cause as, I think as soon as you kind of put that call over, tell us what you believe happened. It's like, this is just what I'm, I'm thinking. And maybe that's not actually what took place. And it's like, Hey, tell us what happened. Tell us what you experienced. Um, right. you know, I, I do agree. It kind of adds a little bit more weight to, to what is being said there. Now, the last thing on this, this point, um, and I've talked a lot about truth in the past. I just had Jeff Myers on to talk about his book on truth. Um, but you, you mentioned this idea, uh, right. Of, of relativistic truth of, you know, like uh, ice cream and brownies and what you like versus what I like. Uh, You know, I don't like chocolate. And you talk about the best dessert and you say, but this, And you say um, there are only opinions of what each person thinks is the best dessert, but the best dessert doesn't fall into the category of objective truth. So if you're going to kind of help someone understand, like, how do you determine which one is in the category of objective versus subjective truth? Like you say, okay, like ice cream and and best dessert is not objective, uh, but religion is objective. And someone else says, well, no, I I put religion in the category of not objective. Uh, How can you tell the difference between uh, what is in the category of objective versus subjective?
1: Well, interestingly, most religious claims—now, I want to be clear, because I know that even people in apologetics and philosophy disagree a little bit on if there is such a thing as subjective truth, if that is just what we would call an opinion. I kind of tend to take the position—I'm not a philosopher, but what makes the most sense to me is the position that subjective truth doesn't exist. It's not a thing. It's just there's there's opinions, and then there's truth, right? And just for me, those are clearer categories. So when I would say, like, a subjective truth claim would be something like— brownies and ice cream is the best dessert or chocolate ice cream is the best dessert. And the way you know the difference between what is a subjective claim and an objective claim is is where the claim is located. So for somebody's favorite flavor of ice cream, there's no way to test the best type of dessert in objective reality because that's based on the subject. That's why we call it a subjective truth claim. It's just based on what's between my ears and my own mind and so you might have a different opinion there's no way to test that so it's it's a it's an opinion it's a preference and so an objective truth claim would be something that's based in the object it's true or false despite what's between my ears so i might and so like sometimes we use the example of insulin for type 1 diabetes I, i'll ask a room full of people what is the best flavor of ice cream and i'll get 50 different answers. And then I ask people, what's the best way to control type one diabetes? And I get the same answer from everybody. Well, why is that? Because everybody sort of instinctively knows that you don't just get to say your opinion on that one because it's rooted outside of your opinion. You can actually believe whatever you want about it, but it won't change reality. And so now when it comes to religion, I think many religions are in the subjective realm because they don't make claims about objective reality. So if you take like the Buddhist eightfold path or new spirituality, which is just sort of this, you know, you cobble together what works for you from all sorts of different things. Um, it's practical. It's, it's more like what your favorite dessert is. It's, it's what makes you have more peace in your life or maybe gives you something to focus on that makes your life feel better to you. Um, but you're not making claims in objective reality, but Christianity does make claims in objective right. reality. And so here's the difference. If Christianity is actually true, which Paul hinged that on the resurrection of Jesus, the apostle Paul said, if, the, if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is in vain and you're still in your sins. In other words, if Christ didn't come out of the tomb, then you might as well just go cobble together what works for you, because that would mean that Christianity is not true. But if Christianity is true, if it is the explanation of reality, then it's true for everyone. And if it is true for everyone, it makes exclusive claims and it makes, it has eternal consequences for everybody. So yeah. I think that's where we need to, to think more deeply about it. And even just thinking about how religions contradict each other, right? Islam and Christianity contradict each other. There's a lot they have in common. They have Jesus in common. Uh, both Islam and Christianity believe Jesus is a prophet. They have high respect for Jesus. They have various things they believe about Jesus that agree with one another. But Islam claims that Jesus didn't die. Right. And if Jesus didn't die, we don't have a resurrection, which Paul says would prove Christianity false. So one of those is wrong, right? They could both be wrong. But if Christ- if Islam is true, then Christianity is false. But if christianity is true then islam is false in fact if christianity is true all the other religions are false right and so it's it's christianity doesn't give us the option of putting it in the favorite flavor of ice cream category because it makes claims about objective reality that would have to be tested in objective reality
0: yeah i think that's so helpful yeah and i I often tell my students too like one way to kind of tell the difference between the two is is can the claim be false and a subjective claim can't be false So I said my, my, my favorite hockey team is the Avalanche, Colorado Avalanche. You can't be like, that's wrong.
1: False, right?
0: No, no, I could be lying if it's not if I don't like hockey or something. I could lie to you. But if that truly is my favorite team, that can't be false. You know, coffee ice cream is my favorite kind of ice cream. That's wrong. No, it's not. It can't be because that is my favorite. And so if a claim can be false, it's in the objective category. If it can't be false, it's in the subjective category. And so that sometimes helps as well. Now, uh, kind of moving on to other lies. Uh, You talk about this one and you mentioned it kind of in our introduction of you are enough. Uh, what is often being communicated here in the claim that you are enough?
1: Right, well, that's sort of that pillar. I think that, you know, I I mentioned this a few minutes ago and I'll maybe go a little deeper here, but I think that where our culture is at, like all of the lies in the book are sort of built on two pillars. And that's the the idea that, you know, truth is fluid or relative or subjective, but also this idea that you're inherently good. Um, This is the number one message that's pumped to my kids through every media outlet that we, like if we watch a show on Netflix or whatever it is, every message is telling them, you, you know, you are enough, you're perfect just as you are. And that's what I think that's, that you are enough is built on. So many of these lies are built on the idea that if you dig down inside of your own heart and identify your deepest longings, your deepest desires, according to culture, those are going to be good. And so you should realize that and just use the tools that you have inside of yourself to make yourself whole and he, and whatever you need. But that only works if what you're going to find in there is something that's good. And so um, I think those two pillars are what just all of these lies are built upon. And the you are enough lie is so much built upon this idea that you're good. You're actually good, what you're going to find in yourself. And that's where I was mentioning before it's, you know, there has to be bad news that precedes the good news. And this is interesting, Ryan. So I've been, you know, kind of doing a lot of research on TikTok about deconstruction and what people are calling toxic theology, because, you know, for a Christian to say, you're inherently sinful, you're not enough, to a lot of people, that's toxic, that's abusive even. In fact, this one TikTok that I was looking at, this girl was comparing the doctrine of original sin with an abusive relationship. She said, you know, if if you talk to an abusive, uh, or if you look at an abusive relationship, the abuser will tell the other person that they're not good enough, that there's something wrong with them, to make them dependent on the abuser. Hmm. And then she said, you know, this is what basically she did it in a clever way, but she's like, this is what Christians are teaching you when they tell you you're a sinner. It's just to keep you dependent on the abuser so they can control you. And I was thinking about that, and I thought, what a brilliant deception that is. Because if you're just a kid watching a 27-second TikTok, you're like, yeah, that that sounds Right, I'm gonna, re- I'm gonna just be enough for myself because that old idea that I would need God or that I'm a sinner, that's toxic, and then to be, it's like an abuser. But if you think about it, I thought about this scenario of, like imagine a man laying on the ground and somebody else comes up to him and starts beating on his chest, leaving deep bruising. Well, that would be abusive. I think everybody would agree, that's abuse. Unless the man laying on the f- ground has just had a heart attack And the person pounding on his chest is actually administering chest compressions for CPR. Yeah, That changes the narrative quite a bit. And so it's really only abusive or toxic if the bad news is untrue. Right. If it's not true, if he didn't have a heart attack and somebody's just beating on him, we'll stop it. You're hurting him. Right? (laughs) But if that's actually saving his life, then it's actually life-giving and it may be uncomfortable. It might hurt. It might bruise but it's saving his life. And so I, I, I've been thinking a lot about that. It's like calling this idea toxic, which so many people do today. It's only toxic if it's not true. And it assumes also that the motive of teaching it, and this is where that postmodernism comes in, because there has to be a power play if you're making a claim like this in in the postmodern mindset, is is this idea that you know, you're just trying to keep them dependent upon you because that's what an abuser would do. Well, that's assuming that that's why God teaches that is so that we'll be dependent, just like to feed his narcissism or something like that. So there's this nefarious motive that gets assigned to it as well. And um, so there's just so many knots to untie for people today, I think, with with these lies.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I've taken CPR training and they talk about how uh, you should be doing chest compressions deep enough to where you're going to break their sternum and probably crack some ribs. And it's like, oh, <laughs> dang. And then you watch all the movies and they're like going down half an inch and it's like, okay. they're, they're like- <laughs> um, yeah. And so uh, absolutely. Right. There, there's this understanding and, and I hear this so much. I have, I have so many times and, and conversations with students where they come to me and like, look, I don't need anybody's help. I can do this all on my own. And it's actually become so common that I start every year in my classroom and I go, so this idea, let's just get this out of the way that you can mm-hmm. do everything on your own and that you don't need any help. Um, Did you build the house that you slept in last night? Mm. Did you make the bed that you slept on? Did you cook the food that you ate for breakfast? And if you cooked it, did you grow it, doubt it? You know, Did you design and build the car that you drove in on the way to your work? Did you pave the roads that you drove on top of? Did you build and design the plane that you flow here in? Did you sew the clothes together that you're wearing? Did you grow the material that you sewed together for those clothes? Like, I mean, you're sitting here doing schoolwork on a laptop. Did you build the laptop, design the laptop? Do you even know how the laptop works? And it's like, other than like eating, sleeping and breathing and walking, we need help for almost everything in life. You can't do, like, if you really wanted to say, I can do everything by myself, well, don't have any education, no teachers. Take a, a baby, teach them nothing, and throw them on, like, a desert island when they're 16 and say, try to figure out how to make fire, cook, survive with no help. And it's like that, that, that's a very <laughs> different picture. And so it's this such a common thing I hear of, like, I don't need anybody's help. I can do this on my own. Well, you need everybody's help for almost everything. Every- um, we we live in a society where we have to rely on one another. And that's a beautiful, wonderful thing. God created us to be in community and to be able to rely on other people when we need help. And it's a wonderful when we can come alongside and help others in that moment. Um,
1: yeah. and, well, can I add this? I yeah. just want to add that because, um, you know, the self-help industry is like a billion yeah. dollar industry of books, movies, document, I mean, you know, podcasts, all sorts of things And you'd think that if I could just help myself, I wouldn't need all this outside help to help me help myself, right?
0: (laughs) Right. Yeah, I heard that once in a sermon is like, you're helping yourself, get yourself out of a problem that yourself got yourself into. Right, um, exactly. It's just this circular thing. Now, what if someone is using this idea of you are enough to try to encourage someone to say like, look, you don't have to be someone different. You don't have to become perfect. The way that God has created you is the way that he wants you to be. And so you are enough. You have the skills, the talents, the abilities that God has made you with. And so just, you know, kind of discover who you are made to be and live that out. You, That's who you are.
1: Right. And I think that's an important, I'm glad you asked this, because that's an important thing to bring out. Because the one thing we do have to understand when we talk about things like original sin and our fallen nature is that there's something that precedes that. And that's the idea, it's the biblical teaching, that every human being that's ever been born has been made in the image and likeness of God. And because of that, every human being has a certain, you know, inherent dignity and value and worth to them, right? So there's a sense in which You know every single person who's been born has unique talents and abilities things that reflect the image of god in them um and and so but but when we skip the part about us being fallen then what can often happen i mean i i don't know if you've observed this ryan i know i have in my own self but some of my greatest strengths are like there's a really fine line between my strength and like a deep weakness that could potentially turn into a very damaging sin. And so in the book, I talk about like, yes, we all have these unique talents and abilities, but think about just even like the ability that somebody might have to be an eloquent and persuasive speaker, right? What a gift, what a talent to be naturally good at communication, persuasion. Now imagine though, that that talent is not surrendered to Christ and, and, you know, being surrendered in a way that you're saying, Lord, use this for good, use this for your glory. Well, that talent is something that's present in every cult leader that's ever killed a bunch of people, right, is the ability to persuade and be a charismatic speaker and and communicator. And so that the, the talent in and of itself can be inherently, you know, natural in somebody. But if that's you, it can be used for good or evil. So can brute strength. Can be used for good or for evil. Mathematical scientific skills can be used for good or for evil. Um, medis- medical skills. I mean, you could think of any sort of natural talent somebody might have that could be used for great good or great evil. So just having those talents, it's not enough to just tell somebody, you know, dig down inside yourself and and uh, you know magnify your talents because you could use those talents for evil or for deception or for something like that. So it, there's a great uh, book by Kathy Cook called um, Eight Great Smarts, where she talks about the It's kind of a book about more like how kids work and just how right. kids have ways they're smart. But I love how she talks about, you know, the effect that original sin has on those things, because you really can. And like in one way, you can have so much, you know, your kid is just like, I have a kid who's a diabolical genius. And I tell her, I'm like, I love that about you. Cause you can like, you can rule the world one day, but you can also do some great evil with that, <laughs> you know, with these ideas that you come up with. So, you know, it, it's, is it surrendered to Christ? Is it sanctified is the question. Right. Cause we are inherently fallen. Probably our natural inclination is gonna be to use those talents for evil as right. we as we witness in our kids.
0: Yeah. Now I think another way in which this is probably often used is this idea of, and I think I mentioned briefly, is like, you don't have to become better to like come to church or to come to Christ, like that you and the way that you are right now is enough. You can come to Christ now. You don't have to become good before you come to him. Uh, What would you say to someone who's maybe using it in that way to say, look, you're enough. Just, just come to church. Just, just come in and uh, you're enough. You don't have to become better.
1: Yeah, I probably would just, I mean, I would understand what they're trying to communicate. Obviously I understand. and would agree with the sentiment, right? We, you don't have to you know, um, check a bunch of boxes before you come to Christ as far as fixing your life patterns. I mean, that's what the regeneration of the Holy Spirit will help you do. Um, but I would just probably encourage people to not use the phrase, you're enough. It's confusing, right? It's, it's like, you're actually not enough. Um, it's, it's the free gift of God. That's what grace, grace means unmerited favor. It means there's nothing about you, your enoughness or anything else that makes you worthy. It's just the free gift of God to you. Now you have inherent worth, but having worth is different than being worthy of a particular thing, right? Mm -hmm. So I think just maybe parsing through the categories. And, you know, of course, I wouldn't uh, judge somebody for saying that because I get what they're trying to communicate. But I'm just, you know, and my husband will tell you, I get. I just get so nitpicky with words. I mean, just don't don't not <laughs> say you're enough. You just find find another way to communicate it because it's uh, it's. I just don't think it's true. It's not what the words it, to say you're enough means. There's something in you that is making you worthy enough to to have this, and that's just not that's not what Christian theology teaches. Your worth, you have worth, you have value, but there's nothing you can do to make yourself enough to receive this gift. It's unmerited favor, it's completely free. And it's, yeah. and your righteousness is filthy rags to God. So I would just maybe encourage different language there.
0: <laughs> yeah. No, that's, how I, 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 yeah, just yesterday, um, you know, I just finished teaching on, on the new age movement and my students are decorating my classroom door for Christmas. And they presented an idea to me that said, all good gifts come from above. They said, can we do this? And I said, and it, my first thought is, well, that's kind of vague. Um, and then I know what it means and I know what they're trying to go with. And, I, and so I'm joking with them and I said, well, because I just finished New Age Movement, I was like, so like, is like above like higher consciousness, like all good things come from like (laughs) higher, and one student laughed and the rest just looked at me and go, guys, worldview joke, come on. And they're like, that's not funny. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, "But remember- yeah, it's big. You know, people can interpret this. Differently. I get what you mean. Yes. Go ahead. Decorate the door like that. I understand where you're going. Yeah. That's fine.
1: <laughs> all my friends, I know it's just like me and words. I, I remember in high school, all my friends were really into this song and it might've been an immigrant song. I don't remember, but I just remember the line said, everything good that happens in life is from Jesus. And I just, that was just, I was like, wait, what, what do you mean by good? Like, you know, every, Every, what if I what I think is good isn't really good. I, I just got all twisted up
0: about that. So <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, now, another one that you mentioned here in the book, I uh, kind of move along to another one of these lies, is this idea of God just wants us to be happy. And I think this can come along in, in a few different ways. And so uh, I'll just throw it out there. So I sent out the first ever think well monthly training letter uh, with this kind of title of a conversation I have with a student of like, well, hey, this action X makes me happy. Therefore, it must be good because God wants me to be happy. I'm doing this. It makes me happy. Therefore, it must be good. And so I kind of walk through how to think well about that in my monthly training letter. So if you want to receive the next monthly training letter for December, you can go click in the link below. I'll put it in the YouTube video or send me a message uh, through the website and you can get that. But I also hear it in like, a, so it happens there of like, hey, this action makes me happy. God wants me to be happy and therefore this action must be good. Um, I've also heard it from Mormons that showed up at the house once and they were talking about why Mormonism is true. And I said, why is it true? And they said, well, because being a Mormon makes me happy and God wants us to be happy. And so how could this be false? And so, uh, you know, it really kind of comes through either in the actions that we do or even the things that we believe. If I believe or do something that makes me happy God wants us to be happy, then it must be true. And so this kind of, I think, hits on that relativism thing as well as kind of that inner feeling of happiness as you talk about. So where do you maybe I, I, those are examples of where I've heard it from. Uh, kind of what how have you experienced this this saying of God just wants us to be happy?
1: Right. It's like the old Cheryl Crow song. If it makes you happy, it can't be that bad. Right. Remember that lyric? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, it can. I mean, heroin makes you happy for a, for a little while, right? Yeah. Or it makes you happy. And so I think, again, how we define words is really important. Because, you know, one thing I talk about in the book is like, actually, God does want you to be happy when you define happiness properly, right? right. And that's fulfilling our purpose, which is to worship God and to be in His presence forever, right? This is, our, this is why we were created. And when, when things function according to their purpose— Um, especially, you know, like humans where we're conscious, like that's going to cause a deep abiding joy and a peace and, and that's going to transcend our circumstances. But I do think, you know, this is one of those deep worldview questions, right? Why are we here? What, what's going to solve the problems? What's, what's the meaning of life? And I think that so many people in our culture have answered the question, what is the meaning of life, along the lines of just feeling a sense of happiness. And, um, In 2005, of course, I'm sure you're aware, they did this research on the average American teenager, and they asked the average American teenager what their views about spirituality were. And this is when the phrase moralistic therapeutic deism was coined, because they discovered that most American teenagers in 2005 believed that... You know, God wasn't really all that concerned about their, you know, what they did with their bodies as far as their sexual lives or something like that. He's not going to, like, you know, hound them on those things. Uh, but, but he, you know, if you have a problem, he'll be there. And ultimately, they believe that God just wanted them to be happy and to be nice. Right? right. And so I think, you know, fast forward now, all those kids are. Are adults, right? And I think that's the pervasive idea in our culture. And it's a very tempting one. I think even for Christians, this is pos- possibly one of the most um, seductive of the lies, because I mean, even as a mom, I'm thinking about my kids. Yeah, I want my kids to be happy. Um, but but more than that, I want them to live, in, live with according to their purpose, which is to be in right relationship with God. And if that means that in their own personal lives, maybe there's something about that that isn't making them all that happy, or they go through times of suffering, that that ultimately they will fulfill their purpose, though, which is to glorify God and be in His presence. And so I think that um, even Christians have gotten this wrong, and especially in progressive Christianity, I do see this sentiment quite a bit of people saying, well, suffering is evil. Suffering is not something God would ever want you to partake. in? I'm um, certainly that doesn't speak for every progressive Christian, but I, I do see that commonly expressed. And I even quoted from a, a blog post in the in the book about that, where a progressive was saying there's no benefit to suffering, you're turning God into a sadist, if you say mm. that um, he would have some sort of purpose for suffering. Well, I think that's a very, very shallow way to think about it. Because obviously, um, we are going to have suffering, everybody's going to have things in this life that make them suffer. And what we have in the Christian worldview is that there's actually benefit to that. There's actually, I mean, think about, this is what I always tell people, think about the people in your life who have suffered the most and yet have also clung to Christ. They're more compassionate than the rest of us. They're better at ministering to other people's needs than the rest of us. They have more wisdom than the rest of us. And in many cases, they have a deeper, more abiding joy about them to where they can be. I I, I have friends like this where Things that will irritate me, they're just more patient because they've been through more. They've suffered more than I have. So the things that bug me just don't bug them as much. (laughs) So we can all see the benefit in it. And that's the beautiful thing about the Bible. And this is what I tried to communicate in that chapter is that even as Christians, if we suffer, let's say we're in an unhappy marriage and we choose to to be obedient and stay in that situation and pray and, and seek the Lord, or we're in a situation where we hate our job and we choose to just try to serve God and do it as unto the Lord and be faithful, even though it causes us suffering. Or we go through legitimately hard things that we didn't have a hand in causing. All of those things, the Bible promises that God is working together for good, everything, everything together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So even in all of those circumstances, we are being deepened and that joy is being worked in us. And being in the presence of God is working in us really great things. And so I think sometimes in our human minds, we want to say, well, that means he's going to work a better circumstance. He doesn't always work a better circumstance. But I love the Elizabeth Elliot quote that I put in the book where she says, the answer is not me in a different set of circumstances, but the answer is Christ in me, Hmm. not me doing something else. And so that's the big thing I think the world is telling us. If you're unhappy, just get a divorce. If you're you know, just get drunk if you're if if something's, you know, stressed out or whatever, just you know, hit the wine o'clock button or whatever, you know, the whole wine mom culture. I'm not saying it's wrong to drink a glass of wine, but just that culture of, you know, oh, I hate being a mom so much, I can't wait till wine o'clock, you know, this is something that's really popular in some of these social media platforms. Mm. And it's like, That's not going to solve your problems. That's just going to make things worse, even though they make you temporarily happy. So we just have to have a more eternal perspective on these things and realize that the point of life is not to be happy, but to be in relationship with God.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think that's so true. And I I think we see so many times in how this affects us. You know, how how I put it in that my article is I said, God doesn't want us just to be happy. He wants us to be holy. Right. And that's, that's the, that's the call. And that sometimes requires so much more, but uh, you bring up such another great example is one of the common ways in which you see this being played out is, well, my marriage doesn't make me happy. So I'm going to get a divorce. And we see the, the pain and the hurt and, and that is caused to both the, the, those that are married and the children that are involved because someone is just pursuing happiness and rather than recognizing, I want to do what is right and do what is good and do what is best for others. I want to put, right. This is like, I think, you know, you talk about in the subtitle, you know, for the self self-centeredness or this versus this other-centeredness and we have a self-obsession. It's like, I'm, I'm putting myself first and, and I'm not happy and therefore I'm going to go find someone that will make me happy and often have less care about how that's going to affect others in our life. And so we see this very, very frequently. And I think technology and social media kind of influences this or at least tempts us towards this as everything is centered around us and what we are doing rather than really caring and, and helping out others. I think that is so huge. Um, now, kind of as we finish up in the last maybe 10 minutes or so that we have, one thing that I think you did here so well in the book is, is in your chapter on authenticity is everything, right? We have such this uh, culture of, you know, be authentic and just, you know, be your true self. And and there's, there's such beautiful truth to that. But then also, as you talk about it, this is one of those terms, as you say, has gotten a modern day makeover where you compare and contrast this idea of artificial authenticity versus biblical authenticity. And I, so I'd love to kind of parse this out a little bit in, in the time that we have left. And so kind of what are you communicating here in this chapter on, on authenticity is everything?
1: Yeah. So, uh, authenticity classically defined means not being fake. It means being genuine. And I think that Christians in that sense should be the most authentic people um, I, You know, we shouldn't be faking it on Sunday morning like we've got it all together and everything's victorious and everything is wonderful. We should be the first people to say, look, I'm struggling. I need prayer. I need help. I mean, that's what we're supposed to be uh, for each other is is the body of Christ is to walk with each other and pray for each other, confess our sins to one another, hold each other accountable. All of that requires that classic idea of authenticity, but that is not at all what our culture means when they, when they use the word authenticity. What the world means, so we've kind of built this foundation of these two great pillars of the truth being fluid and you being kind of inherently good. Well, then authenticity is sort of the pinnacle of this, right? So that the world will tell you to identify your deepest longings, your deepest desires. And, and live, the, that's your true authentic self, is your deepest desires, according to culture, right? That's the, right. That's the artificial uh, authenticity we talk about in the book. So you identify your deepest desires, that you make that your actual identity, and then you proclaim that to the world and expect everybody else to affirm that about you. Well, Christianity gives a completely opposite picture of authenticity. If you want to be truly authentic— Biblically, then you're going to identify your deepest longings, your deepest desires, and you're going to realize that most, many to most of those are going to be in conflict with what is actually good and right. And so they require change. And that change, when, in reference to a person in our culture is like a, a bad word. It's like hate speech to sit, to suggest to somebody that they would need to change their desires or bring those desires under submission of some, of another authority, right? But the Bible teaches that we should actually repent, turn from those things and be changed every day that's the Christian life is we are changed every day and so um real authenticity isn't everything biblically but holiness is pursuing Christ being made more and more like him every day and this is the process of sanctification and Uh, I love the way theologian Charles Ryrie talks about that, where he says, God gives you light, you respond to that light, and then he gives you more light. And you respond to that, and then he gives you more light. And it's like this, this process that we're all on. And some people are, you know, further down the road than others. And some people that happens more quickly than others. But the point is that real biblical authenticity is surrendering those desires to Jesus and saying, look, I know that not all of these line up with Your character with who you are. So change this about me. I turn from this and I turn to you. And so making, uh, conformity to Christ or holiness the main goal, I think is a much better, a much better thing to think about being everything than just simply living out your deepest desires.
0: Yeah. And I think this then gets into such a deeper conversation uh, of just where our our identity is found and and where that is, is do we determine identity, right? And so we have this, you know, I think as uh, we had a chapel speaker recently come to my school and and, and talk about this idea, like, you know, a long time ago, it was like your culture defines who you are, right? And you look to everyone around you to get your identity from, from those around you and how you're supposed to live and how you're supposed to act and what social class you're born into. And so your culture is defining who you are. And then we've taken that and then switched it and say, no, I define who I am and so right. now instead of looking at those around me it's now I look within to figure out who I am and what is my true identity and I want to live authentically to that and and then kind of went through the the steps of how that is so destructive of when you get your identity from others right the culture has terrible ideas and we see that all around the world certain people are not valuable human beings and are not worthy of dignity and respect and all of a sudden you start putting that on yourself if that's who I am it's like that's wrong but at the same time we realize within we have desires I love how Frank Turk puts this is like we all have desires we ought not act on, right? Yeah. And just because I have a deep-seated desire within me for something does not mean I should do that. Um, right. And so if I make that my identity, and this is who I am, and I live out that desire, that often as well leads to pain and destruction. And again, this self-focused, self-obsessed thing, if it's just about who I want to be, rather than my identity is found in Christ, looking up to God for our identity and then living out that true identity in us. And um, And so again, this kind of just speaks so much more into, again, not only the false idea of authenticity and what that means, but then who defines you? And and there's so much pain. I mean, maybe you looking into TikTok and all this kind of stuff, you've seen this too, but like so how much pain is caused by getting our value and our worth from likes, followers, subscribers, um, and, and and putting so much weight on what others think about us um, versus getting our identity and our value and our worth and dignity from Christ and living that out authentically.
1: Yeah. Yeah,
0: that's a great point. Yeah, and so you, you start here and, and kind of to wrap up this point, is you talk about, um, again, kind of bringing this back to scripture in 2 Corinthians. Um, you know, you talk about if anyone is in Christ, he's a brand new creation. The past is gone. We're literally made new. And so you said true authentic, authenticity begins with death specifically a death to self and a reorientation toward living Christ. I'd love to kind of, if you could play this out just a little bit on what the hope that is in this as we finish up our time together.
1: Right. Well, it's it's just such a radically different worldview than culture right now, isn't it? It's just, I mean, even, you know, hearing, hearing that it's like, I think the, for Christians, what we have to do is we have to stop, trying to fit in with culture. Now, it's not like we want to be jerks. We don't want to you know, purposely offend people just you know, to be a jerk. But we have got to get off the hamster wheel of culture. You mentioned social media. This is what I always tell people. Why not plant your feet in the unchanging Word of God? It's never going to change. It's always going to be true. So if you're on that side, then you're on the right side of everything always. How much better and more freeing and more peace is that going to give you than feeling like you have to check Twitter every five minutes to find out what you're supposed to think that you didn't think nobody thought five minutes ago? You know, Ryan, interestingly, as I do my deconstruction research, many of the posts that we quote in the book, we went back to double check the footnotes. They've A lot of them have been deleted. Many of them have. I mean that's that's how people exist now. It's just oh I wasn't supposed to say that or now it's unpopular to say that so I got to delete it so I don't get canceled. Oh man, get off the get off the hamster wheel of culture and just plant your feet on the bedrock of God's truth. And that is how you're really going to have true peace and true um, just even peace with yourself and peace with God and and peace with your circumstances is to just get off get off that hamster wheel of culture and just plant your feet on God's truth.
0: Yeah, that is so good. Well, there are so many other lies here in this book, Live Your Truth and Other Lies, exposing these popular deceptions. Uh, if you have enjoyed this conversation and and have seen kind of some of these lies in your own life and, and helped and Have enjoyed how we've tried to help you think well and think biblically about them. Uh, Pick up a copy of this book and kind of be educated on the others. Uh, Lisa, as we finish up, uh, I know that you're doing so much. You're podcasting, you're writing and blogging and everything. Can you kind of give some information to everyone who's listening about where they can find more information on the work that you're doing?
1: Yeah, thanks. So uh, it's the Elisa Childers podcast. I also have a YouTube channel, Elisa Childers. Um, and alisachilders.com has all the links and everything you need for all of that. But, uh, yeah, so just that you can find everything there.
0: Alisa, thank you so much for joining me and taking this time to discuss this new book of yours. Thanks, Ryan. All right, everybody. I hope this has been helpful. And again, pick up a copy here. All If you're watching on YouTube, all the links to Elise's content will be listed there below. Again, a new monthly training newsletter is kind of going out each month. Uh, just another way in which I want to just try to help equip you to think well about the faith and the culture so that you can engage it well. And so this is a free resource. I'll put a sign up link below in YouTube, or if you're listening on podcasts, you can go to the website, think-well.org, and you can sign up for that monthly training letters. I just want to kind of give you more resources for that, as well as There's tons of other videos that'll pop up over over here, of other interviews and content to help you think well on topics that are interesting to you. If you found this to be of value, if you would share it, like it, uh, send it to a friend who also will be encouraged by this, and go pick up a copy of Elisa's book. So with that, I just want to thank you so much for joining us today. I hope this has encouraged you in your faith and how God has called you to be in the identity that you have in Christ. Uh, We will be having more interviews and conversations uh, coming up. So if you want to subscribe and check. out, you go ahead and do that. And I will see you next time with another conversation. And until then, continue to think deeply about God, Christianity, and Jesus, because they are worth thinking about. God bless everybody.